Welcome everyone to Two Guys to the Dark Tower Kane, a podcast where we discuss the characters, connections, and deeper meanings of Stephen King's magnum opus, The Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McGurr. You can find more information about the podcast at twoguystothedarktowercane.com. You can also email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. In this episode, we'll cover book five of The Dark Tower, Wolves of the Kala, part three. Chapters 5 through 7, and the epilogue. Let's start the show! The townspeople of Colibrin Sturgis meet and agree, for the most part, that they will seek aid from Roland and the Cotet. Callahan has a brief outing to our world via the magic door, while Eddie nearly succumbs to the evil of Black Thirteen. Roland's plan is put into action, Andy is shut down, a trap is set, and the Cotet and Sisters of Oriza are able to defeat the wolves with only two casualties. During the celebration, Mia, now dominant, is able to escape with Black Thirteen through the doorway in the cave, where Callahan discovers he may not be who he thought he was. Mm. Jay, we've come to the end of the book. We finally met the wolves. The wolves. Finally got the wolves. (laughs) And for all that, The most interesting for me was not the Battle of the Wolves, after I've been clamoring for it for the past few episodes, but really the metafictional aspects of this book that, looking back now, we can see King has been hinting at things for a long time, but when the wolves appear, we realize that they're a combination of things that are familiar from our world, that Eddie and Jake are starting to put together, although they don't know all of it, but The wolves themselves remind them of Doctor Doom from Marvel Comics in their looks. They're holding lightsabers from the Star Wars movies. And the Sneetches are from Harry Potter, um, which they're not aware of because it was later in their timeline than they know about. But they pick one up and it says the Harry Potter model on it. Um, A little bit odd. Yeah, I thought that was an odd choice on King's part. He could have done any other number of fictional references, but he chose one that came from a time long after, or many years after, Eddie and and the rest had crossed over into Roland's world. So it meant nothing to them. It was just this mysterious other thing. It could have been just as random as uh, lightsabers if they had, if they were from 10 years earlier. Right. But it meant something to us, and I think it meant something to King. Yeah, he's he's a very big fan of J.K. Rowling and the Harry Potter books. Um, it was nice to see him call that out. I guess the bigger question is, what's it supposed to mean for us as the reader that these wolves are an amalgamation of fictional tropes in our world, both from comics and movies and popular fiction? I mean, we've been dealing with echoes between worlds since almost page one of the Dark Tower series, right? As Roland is approaching Tull, Roland can hear Hey Jude being played by Sheb at Sheb's saloon in Tull. So from that moment forward, we know that there are things that are connecting Roland's world to our world. And it's kind of like a chicken and egg type of thing. You know, which which world influenced the other? And there's really no way to tell because there's also evidence along the way that there have been many times that the two worlds have been connected, that people have crossed from one to the other in either direction. So did somebody come over and 
influence Hey Jude? Did something happen in the reverse? Did Stan Lee cross over and when he invented all of these comic book characters and get his inspiration for Doctor Doom from Roland's World? Who knows? I think this is just a way for, uh, at least on the surface, this is a way for King to explore this idea that there are other worlds than these, that these types of ideas and creatures and appearances and even types of characters can exist in multiple places and have just slight variations between them. So that's a good starting theory, and we could probably leave it at that, that this is just an influence like the Hey Jude and some of the other pieces that we see crossing over between worlds. Um, until we get to the end of this section, in which while chasing Mia, the rest of the Cotet, the all-male members of the Cotet, get to the cave and encounter Calvin Tower's bookshelves, mm-hmm. and Father Callahan pulls a book off the shelf, and it is Salem's Lot. And he's reading about a character within the book that is obviously him and knows things that only he would know because it's part of his interior monologue and it's reciting the events that he actually lived. And this is a book that is a novel in our world, Mm -hmm. fictional, but it exists here. And he starts to question whether or not he's a fictional being or not. And he understands that it is written as a fictional story because he is just one element of this larger narrative and the only way that the person who wrote the story could know the things that he was thinking and to have access to his inner thoughts and his childhood experiences and his deepest fears is if that person either was him or invented him. Yes. And he has a hard time squaring that circle. And it brings back earlier in the novel when Eddie talked about that, how he said things don't quite seem real and it's almost like being in a story, and he started to question that. Mm -hmm. And so the fact that we've got two characters who are wondering about the nature of their existence, a antagonists who are made up of other fictional things from our world, it really starts to play with your head and as the reader wondering what, what King's getting at here. And, and what's going to happen. And of course, we're left with a cliffhanger here. And so we don't know where we, we pick up because that really ends the novel where Father Callahan starts to question his existence and, and what he is. But um, King is laying it on heavy. We've said before that the last few books have been stories about stories, and this just seems to continue that motif here. Yes. And speaking of continuing motifs, one of the things that King now is spreading to more and more characters in, his, in the story is the voice in the head construct. The idea that when we first meet Roland, he's a solitary character. So King had to rely on some sort of structure to give Roland a way to have conversations, to give Roland a way to share his thoughts. King did this largely through Roland remembering what other characters in his life said to him, things he learned, things he experienced, things he regretted. And then that expanded to a more literal voice in the head when Roland jumped through the doors on the beach and was inside Eddie's head, inside Susanna's head. Actually, it was Odetta and Detta <laughs> right. at the time, but nevertheless. And that has expanded to more and more characters. We get Jake's inner monologue sometimes. We get a lot of Eddie thinking about his brother talking to him. Um, Susanna is a divided consciousness, so there's always kind of a a multiple 
voice multiple identity thing going on with her. So now we're even getting to the point where almost secondary characters, well, yeah, I guess they're secondary characters, get to have this voice in the head construct. We even get an example where Tian, right before he's going to have this final townsfolk uh, meeting, he gets nervous and he starts thinking about he starts thinking about facing everybody in the town and how if things don't go well, it's all going to be his fault somehow. And he gets really, uh, he gets very nervous. And then he suddenly hears the voice of his grandfather in his head. Mm. But it's not the voice that we hear ourselves of the man at his current old age. It's when he might have been young and how he might have sounded. So it's not just something that Tian is remembering grandpare having said. It's more of, if I knew my grandfather when he was my age, what would he say to me at this moment? So it's kind of like, it's doubling and tripling upon itself. This idea, this construct of voices in your head are helping to inform your thoughts, helping to inform your decisions. So it's maybe another kind of metafiction? Yes, agreed. The one thing that I was missing with Grandpere is we're told numerous times throughout the book that he's whispered something to Eddie. He's whispered mm -hmm. 19 words that will be the truth about the wolves. And those 19 words are never revealed as such, are they? No. Like we could take it for granted that he obviously told Eddie that they were robots underneath the masks. Or that they have spinning satellite dishes on their heads. Right. Um, and somehow that the gray means metal, the gray horses. Wait, the horses are gray? It turns out that the horses were gray. Oh, Yeah. I guess it all makes sense now. Yeah. But we don't actually get the 19 words. I mean, is this King failing us or is this King not knowing how to write a sentence with 19 words that would reveal everything? <laughs> yeah. It's like every time he wrote it, it came out to like, damn it, 22 words. Damn it, 37 words. Damn it. I just can't get it down to 19. So <laughs> yeah. I'll just have the old man whisper it in Eddie's ear and never actually say it out loud. I, I love how all your examples are longer than 19 because we know King couldn't make it less than. <laughs> yeah. It, it was never a struggle. How do I pad this out? No, I don't, I don't see King with that problem. Yeah. So I wonder if this metafiction is going to continue. Obviously, I mean, we have to solve the mystery of is Callahan real or not, but then also are some of the other characters equally not Israel. If if we take the wolves to be constructs of a sort and Callahan potentially a construct, where does that leave the rest of the characters, if any at all? Um, but I'm sure this metafictional piece will continue on, and I'm excited to see how it goes because, as you know, it is a interest of mine. Mm -hmm. The other theme that I wanted to discuss in this section was the mythology. So in book four. And even book four and a half, we get a lot of mythology around Roland's world. And in this book, there hasn't been quite as much, especially around the tower. We get a lot of the history of Colibrin Sturgis and sort of understanding the town life on the outer skirts of Midworld here, um, mm -hmm. way far away. And we're, we're told a little bit about what life is like there and the God of Ariza and the tale of Grey Dick, but um, not a whole lot about the Dark Tower until this section. And there's a couple interesting pieces in this section that we thought we'd want to call out. And at one point, Roland says that there's only two beams left for the Dark Tower. Yeah. Yeah. How does he know that there are only two beams left? Yes. It, I mean, we've been 
with Roland very closely for the last few days. He hasn't had many adventures off on his own where he could have learned additional information. So um, I'm not sure how he knows that and what exactly that means. I kind of got the impression that Roland has had this information for a very long time, perhaps mm. since before we joined him on his journey in book one. Mm. But if that's the case, why didn't he ever mention it anytime he mentioned the beams? And I know that part of this is simply that King hadn't thought of the beams when he wrote book one. And I don't think he thought of the beams until maybe book three. Um, so there are a lot of years of of King thinking about these characters and, and the story that they live within without that detail. So that idea didn't occur to him or seemingly didn't occur to him until we meet Shardik and we start following one of the beams. But in that explanation, Roland says, 12 portals, one tower, six beams, right? Yes. He doesn't say there used to be six beams. <laughs> We're down to two. And I know this because he just says there are six beams mm. and we're following one half of one of them. And that's fine. Like Roland can't know everything, but now all of a sudden he seems to have additional information. It feels a little bit, I don't know, unearned. Yes. And it brings up more questions for me as to what happened to the other four beams. How 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 have they gone away? Um, now I'm starting to picture the Dark Tower like a kerplunk piece where there's these sticks going through, and as these beams go away, eventually all the marbles are going to fall down. Hmm. Not a ker not a kerplunk guy, Jay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I wasn't quite sure where you're, where you're going with that until you finished your explanation. Yeah, so I don't know what makes the beams go away how you can save the beams, how you protect the beams. I know that they want to protect the tower, but my understanding now is that it seems like there must be a way of protecting the beams, and I'm interested to see how that goes. So that's the first piece of mythology that is interesting to me, and I'm hoping it gets explored a little bit more. One other thing I'll say on this, and, and um, in chronological publication order, King wrote other books that spoke to Dark Tower world building and mythology before he published this book. Okay. And it's possible because it's been a long time since I've reread any of these books. And so um, I'm saying this more as speculation than anything else. Maybe we learned as readers in some of those other books that only two beams are left. Mm. And somehow King needed to preserve that continuity by sort of prying a couple of lines apart here and putting it in the mouth of Roland to say it to state it as fact, so that that element of the overarching plot of the peril of the tower would continue and make sense. That's, that's still pretty meta, like in terms of like, I mean, my first explanation was the author's process and the discovery of the story itself. And now this one is kind of more of the same in that King's story about the Dark Tower is larger than the Dark Tower books. So... Maybe we get a better explanation or a more detailed explanation in a book outside of this. And um, it's something that we'll get to when you and I get to those books, I guess. We'll, yeah. We'll have, we'll have a, a big aha moment, perhaps, and say, <laughs> oh, that's where somebody finds out that there are only two beams left. So Roland also mentions, um, he says, what God? Because according to current rumor, 
the top of the dark tower was empty. And I think this might be the first instance where we get the sense that perhaps God is in the top level of the dark tower, that there that that's sort of the metaphysical piece of this, that that God is in the dark tower, but since the dark tower is empty, there is no God. Um a lot to explore there. And I'm not sure where the current rumor is coming from. Does is that in page six of the Daily Gilead that Roland picks yeah. up and sees <laughs> sees the rumor rumor section? Blind item. Yeah. The dark it's in tower the zodiac. is empty. <laughs> If you're a turtle, the dark tower is empty on the <laughs> And and if you're a bear, expect the unexpected. Um well I think the fact that the word God is used here is interesting to me too, because Roland is our maybe our most direct and perhaps reliable authority on what the tower is. Mm-hmm. And Roland is not a religious person. He has repeatedly throughout these books stated he doesn't believe in any gods or God. Right. So to kind of like assign this notion of God or associate this notion of God with the Dark Tower seems weird to come from Roland, um, even in response to somebody else's use of the word. I, I think that Roland's perspective might be, or maybe a translation of Roland's perspective might be that if a being or an entity does reside at the top of the tower, that being has so much power that they are akin to a god or akin to the monotheistic idea of the god or capital G God, but I don't, I don't know that Roland thinks of, you know, God lives in the dark tower or the dark tower is God's house. (laughs) I just don't think he thinks that way. It was a nice play on, not play on words. It was a nice turn of phrase when Roland thinks, according to current rumor, the top of the dark tower was empty. I, I, I like that. Now, what is the one thing that Roland believes in is Ka? And King has another one of his short sections. This is chapter seven, part three. He says, at first, everything went according to plan, and they called it Ka. When things began going wrong and the dying started, they called that Ka too. Ka, the gunslinger could have told them, was often the last thing you had to rise above. Mm -hmm. But I thought that you couldn't be above Ka (laughs) or even aspire to rise above it. Yeah, it's it's strange how he thinks of that as the... Mm -hmm. At times he puts everything on Ka, and at the other hand, he says, you know, you can't blame Ka. There can't be Ka. You need to rise above Ka. So you just need to do what you need to... I I sort of took this as, you just need to do what you need to do. Um, And really, that makes me think that there is some free will involved here, potentially, in the gunslinger's mind. Or if there's not, you just have to do with what you think is right, and that'll be you rising above Ka. It's sort of unclear, but... The gunslinger is being less passive here, and I think that that's what he's getting at, that there's others who will attribute everything to Ka and just sort of be passive, and he realizes that there might be more action that you can take, or at least a semblance of action. Even if it's not truly your own, you can at least take some action, and that's rising above Ka, perhaps. Mm. Yeah. Or, I mean, based on things that Roland has said in the past, Everything you do is basically in service of Ka. So the actions you take and the choices you make are still ultimately for Ka or in line with what Ka has already set up for you to do. So I don't know. 
it feels kind of like an expression that I I'm not a big fan of. It is what it is. Right. Like it it just that that always seems so defeatist to me. And Roland is not that at he all. He is not like yeah. I mean, he is not like ah, you know, Kesarasarai. Right. Like that is not <laughs> Roland. But at the same time, he kind of is all the time. Every time Roland talks about Ka, he is saying whatever will be will be. Right. Yeah. But he knows that you have to have some agency to maybe help Ka along the way or something. I don't know. It's it's perhaps one of King's greatest inventions in this story because he doesn't use the word fate and that gives him some room to grow and expand the meaning of this word. Yes. And because if he just used an English word fate that we can check Webster's, he's locked down. But with Ka it's a mystic thing that applies in his fantasy world, and it can be lots of things, and therefore more fun. One of the fun Ka-related things in this section for me was the fact that when they gathered all of the twins, it was 99 of them. Mm. And that was a bit of synchronicity that I really liked. Um, the number 99 is another magical number for our heroes. We've got 19, we've got 99. But I also kind of think that playing into the fate, or sorry, Ka, uh, and <laughs> prophecy thing a bit, maybe this end to the wolves thing that this book is about couldn't have happened until this magical number of 99 occurred. Like, an odd number of twins is probably unlikely, because by their nature, twins are an even number. And then to have exactly 99 seems even less likely to occur on its own. So, you need 50 pairs of twins to have 100 children, and then one of them, just one, to die of some other cause besides the wolves to number 99. So I think like cosmically, statistically, <laughs> this seems a very unlikely occurrence. And for it to happen just at the time when Roland and his quartet to happen to pass on through following the path of the beam, this is all perfect coincidence and synchronicity that that just works really well in a fantasy story. Yeah. And we finally get a reason as to why they're the Cotet of 99, which was introduced at the beginning of the book. And it wasn't clear to us why that number jumped into, I think it was Jake who said it, right? Or was it mm. Eddie? And I think it might have been Jake. Yeah. And it was like, why did he say that? And maybe they're the Cotet to save the 99. Now, the one thing I will point out is Roland seems to think that perhaps in some way the wolves make sure that there's always one twin who has died so that they can manipulate that person to be their traitor on the inside. Right. And that's why Ben Sleitman is chosen because he'll do anything to protect his remaining child. Um, and so they might always end up with an odd number. It's not exactly clear, but to your point, I think the fact that it's the number 99 and you know, you basically have a, it's a 1% chance. It's a one, one in one in a hundred. I think that that yep. is a, is a good point. Yep. I think it's worth talking about for at least a little while. The five minutes of action we finally get in this book when we see our heroes fight against the wolves, right? The title of the book is The Wolves of the Kala. We have been reading this book for, I don't know how many episodes worth of our show. Every episode we kept saying, where are the wolves? I don't see any wolves. We finally get the wolves. And it's five minutes of of description of the action of the battle. And King 
King was preparing us for this from the beginning of the book. Yeah. How many times did we read that line from one character or another, mostly Roland saying, it's going to be over five minutes, folks. Yep. Right. And here we are over in five minutes. Yep. He, he tells us over and over again that a battle is lots and lots of planning, lots and lots of talk, and then the action comes and, you know, the plans can fall apart and it won't go as you necessarily think and things will get crazy and it'll be a red curtain. And I mean, he's been telling us that all along. So we should have been prepared for the fact that there's 600 pages of lead up before the, you know, 10 pages of action in the book. Yeah. King, you got us once again. Uh, (laughs) You told us what you were going to do and then you did it. And we complained the whole time. Mm -hmm. So I think the five minutes of action is actually extended by at least a couple of more minutes because before the wolves battle, we get the end of Andy the robot, right? Yes. And that's a really cool scene. It gives Eddie a chance to shine and do his gunslinger work and he does it really well. It's not like the protracted thing that happens with Blaine. This is planned out and executed flawlessly. And it's a really cool moment. We've been getting these really nice hints that Andy is not only masquerading as a friendly helper robot, but is secretly this you know treacherous threat to the, the town, but that he purposely moves and stands and acts in ways that make him seem more feeble and delicate than he actually is. Mm. Because when the time comes, when he needs to move fast, when he needs to be strong, he's like like liquid lightning, you know, like, and it just, so you really need to be superhuman almost with your speed to defeat him. Because if he gets a hand on you, you're finished. Right. So we needed somebody like Gunslinger, like Eddie, to be the one to take him out. So I had a lot of fun watching Eddie do this, but I, I wanted to kind of just throw this to you and, and our listeners as well. What did you think of Eddie's catchphrase this time? His action hero catchphrase as he uh, dispatched the bad guy. May it do you fine, you stainless steel bastard. I like that. It's Eddie pulling in a little bit of his current location. You know, the words mm-hmm. of the call up, may it do you fine. Um, and yet, you know, obviously identifying his, his uh, enemy, you stainless steel bastard. I mean, it, it works pretty well, I think. Uh, just seems like I liked it. But it has a lot of words in it, and it feels like a mouthful. It's not like, you know, you lose or something like that, but it's a... It is a one-time only piece, because it is directed specifically at this character. It's not like he can use it elsewhere. Mm -hmm. But one thing that occurred to me, and I kind of go off on these rants all the time, I feel like this was such a missed opportunity. Eddie blinds Andy, then uses the password to get him into, like, reset mode. Right. Control alt delete Andy. But then so he's able to command Andy. Yeah. He has Andy completely at his will. Right? What does Eddie do? What's the plan? Turn yourself off. Oh, and by the way, um, if he turns off, he'll never he doesn't have enough battery power to turn back on again ever again. So this is this is destroying Andy. We don't want Andy around as a threat. But if Andy is at your beck and call and you've told him his password, Andy's got access to all the info. Yeah. He also has the superhuman strength of this of this robot. Now he's a blind robot, but that doesn't mean that there's maybe there's something you can repurpose him as. He could like 
carry uh, Susanna around or something, like, you know, Chewbacca style. And he could tell them all of this stuff. He knows what goes on beyond Thunderclap. He knows, mm. he's like Blaine. He has all the data. Yep. And all they do is go, all right, turn yourself off. We, we don't need to ask you any questions. <laughs> we don't need to rely on information gathering to help us along our way. So I just found it kind of frustrating. Starting to think that the Cotet might not be the best long-term thinkers that we've got. <laughs> very much in the moment. Yeah. They're, they're very good at strategy. I mean, overall, Roland's plan works to a T. Um, it might even have worked even better if uh, the, the one twin hadn't broken his ankle up and, uh, on the path. I mean, they might have totally yeah. been able to ambush them without any casualties. As it is, they only lose two. But yeah, overall, maybe not thinking long-term about, hey, we could use information to help us in our quest, but what are you going to do? Oh, and while I'm, while I'm still in rant mode, <laughs> they killed all the wolves, and all of the wolves were armed with lightsabers. Why yes. didn't anybody collect a lightsaber or two for like extra <laughs> weapons? I am a kid of the Star Wars era. I have my whole life wished that a lightsaber could be a real thing. If I found one lying on the ground, I wouldn't go, hmm interesting and keep walking i would say oh man i got a lightsaber check it out and i'd probably promptly cut off one of my limbs by accident but um it's still if you're a gunslinger couldn't you figure out how to use a lightsaber for some stuff at the very least some of those uh sneech grenades too would be helpful to have put those in yeah. the roland's gunny and have those in the future but yeah i think yeah. i could find one or two Two uses for a lightsaber. You never know when you're going to come across a tauntaun. You have to open up and keep your body warm in on your way to Thunderclap. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> maybe it's really cold in Thunderclap. Uh, all right, so we've come to the end of the book. We've had we've had a lot of fun with this book. I think you know, even in our rants and raves of getting there. But as we always do when we come to the end of a Stephen King book, we have to wonder: Did he stick the landing? Um, and what do you think, Jay? Is is King sticking the landing of Wolves of the Kala here? Mm, I'd say mostly. I mean, he did give us what we were told. Like, he sets up a town. The town is in danger. A bunch of outsiders in the form of our Katet come to save the town from the evil wolves that are coming in. The evil wolves come in, the Katet saves the town, and it ends. I mean, in that way, it very much fulfills the structure of a western as sort of laid out for us um yes and it does it in a way that makes sense there are casualties but not to our main characters um there is a sense of loss and grief uh to some extent the characters maybe don't grow along the way other than i think we've talked a little bit about this but jake probably grows the most in this book mm -hmm. as he grows out of childhood and really makes a friend and has to lose the friend and becomes a gunslinger. Um, he has uh, some emotional scenes towards the end here. Roland is always Roland. Uh, as we've said before, there's not much on Susanna, but we get th this piece of Mia and uh, Eddie. So, you know, overall, I think that from a structural way that he has done a good job of sticking the landing. Having said that, there's still a lot left unsaid. We get this cliffhanger with Father Callahan, who I fictional a lot. We have Susanna, who's turned into Mia and his runoff. And so it has set us up for our next book. Um, but for the most part, I think I'll give this a thumbs up from a sticking the landing part. Yeah, I, that's why I, I said mostly. I, 
I agree with everything you said. The part where it feels like the the gymnast has not quite landed with locked knees and hands <laughs> up is that I feel like the the larger story feels not fully acknowledged. It mm. doesn't feel like the end of a chapter in our journey to the Dark Tower. It feels like a conclusion to the events at Colibrin Sturgis. They don't quite line up. And we've experienced this to large and small degrees in every other one of the Dark Tower books. Um, I have to keep coming back to this idea of defending King's choices by saying it's seven books that are one story. It doesn't really matter where the covers are. Mm. But if you're going to think about where to put the covers, where he chose to put the cover between book three and book four, I struggled a lot with. And I feel like where he chooses to put the cover between book five and book six feels not as egregious, but it still feels like he just kind of picked a random place. Because as we know from behind the scenes, he wrote five, six, and seven in basically one go. He wrote one long story and then chunked it into three parts and published them as separate books. But much more than any of the other books, these last three are of a piece. And so I feel like Colibrin Sturgis wraps up, but immediately, like without missing a beat, like the very next moment of the what would be the next page is like page one of book six. So it's like, I feel like we didn't really get an end in a sense. We just got the end of a chapter, not the end of a book. That's where it's a little shaky for me. Can I say that the difference between book three and book four is like going from Empire to Return of the Jedi, where we're really left on a cliffhanger and we wonder what happened to Han? Whereas Mm -hmm. the difference between book five and going into book six is more like The Force Awakens to The Last Jedi, where we end with Luke. And it does seem like, hey, we've ended the story, we found Luke, but we really want to know what happens next, which is the beginning of a new story which is The Last Jedi, just to bring it full circle with Star Wars. Yes, it's a very good lightsaber-related analogy. (laughs) Now, one thing that King has not really wrapped up that I sort of expected more on was what's happening in New York City with Calvin Tower and the Rose. It seemed at the beginning of the book that that was a vital piece that I thought would be wrapped up in this book for the amount of time we spent on it early on with the Toad Ash and the various trips back to New York City. Um, and we're left with that really hanging in the balance. You know, Calvin Towers. Yeah, it in, almost felt forgotten. Yeah. We know it's out there because even in this section, Callahan takes a trip to visit them, um, or at least to the city where the town that they're in, in, in New England. Um, but But we don't get that. But that's about the only piece that I feel didn't get maybe enough of a, a look at in this section. But One thing that did concern me as we wrap up towards the end here is in the celebration with the Kala and all the townspeople are on the road and really everyone's celebrating except for the two men who've lost their wife and child. Mm -hmm. Everybody else is happy because the terror of the wolves is gone and they're all excited and great happenings are going. And somehow Susanna slash me is able to slip away. And it just seemed as we know that they were concerned about Susanna and Mia this whole time that no one really kept an eye on her and she was able to just slip away. And the fact that they put it 
more on the rest of the quartet for not paying attention. It would have been better, I think, again, criticizing King for how he treats Susanna, if Mia could have had a lot more agency in how she snuck away and how she was able to get away from the rest of the folks here. I know she's able to do that, but when we see it through their eyes, it's all like, what happened to Susanna? She was here a minute ago. Now she's gone. Oh my yeah. God, I thought you were looking after her. Um, and it, I think that could have been done a little bit better. I agree. We know that gunslingers are supposed to never miss a detail. Yeah. People like Roland, Eddie, and Jake should never have missed the fact that Mia was sneaking away. But if anybody could pull one over on them, it would be Mia slash Susanna slash Odetta slash Detta, right? Because it has been clearly established that she is a very capable gunslinger herself. She's also very stealthy. Stealthy, yeah. Right. So to your point, let's put the reader in her mind, have the reader follow her, and then we get to see the level of stealth that she has to employ to escape notice. And then yeah. she's the one who is empowered by that, even though it feeds the plot, even though it puts her in danger. Let the people who missed it, let's miss them too. Yes. We can come back to them and hear and have their reaction, but let's go, let's follow her as she makes her sneaky escape. Yeah. Yeah. And for whatever reason, King chose not to do it that way. I know he had a lot to say about Jake and the loss of his friend and witnessing this death and being covered in his friend's blood and the severed arm with the palm facing the sky and all that. <laughs> Great stuff. But the fact that it was just kind of like, all right, we're going to write all that and then have everybody turn around all at once and go, oh, wait, where's that character that we always seem to forget about? Yeah. I guess we forgot about her again. Yeah. Kind of, kind of a, a whiff there. Yeah. But as we've said, the next book is Song of Susanna, so we have lots of hope that we'll be spending lots of time with Susanna slash Mia. We'll, we'll, we'll see. So that brings us to fun stuff, Jay. Yeah, fun stuff. Woohoo! Yeah. One thing that I, uh, I'll throw into fun stuff is that I thought it was awfully nice and clean for Jake that his one connection to Colibrin Sturgis died. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of macabre, but... It's also a pretty clean exit. It's like a James Bond movie. As long as the lover dies at the end, James Bond's free to continue on to the next book. Yeah. If only somebody had painted Benny Sleitman in gold from head to toe <laughs> instead. <laughs> we get another great instance of literary Eddie in this section. He quotes Stephen Crane, and of course, not Stephen Crane's best known work, Red Badge of Courage, but instead, In the Desert, a poem in which he says, It is bitter bitter, but I like it because it is bitter and because it is my heart. And he knows he doesn't have the words right, but he's pretty close. Um, yeah. But again, Eddie's just pulling these random literary facts out of, out of his head like there's no tomorrow. Yeah. It's almost like he has the same literary training and lived experience as like, say, a best-selling novelist. <laughs> yeah. Growing up in Maine <laughs> in the 50s and 60s. <laughs> Uh, I really liked how, I guess it was kind of Eddie thinking this. Um, he thought of Roland as a true genius of mendacity. Mm. The fact that Roland is presented to us as not just a liar, but like a pro level, uh, you know, world-class <laughs> black belt liar that uh, to exhibit this genius of mendacity. And I also appreciate the fact that King didn't bother telling us what Roland said. He just told us 
it wasn't true and everybody believed every word yep and i thought that was some very efficient and very very strong uh writing choices there yeah well as the husband of a librarian i appreciate the fact that father callahan wants to return the book he steals from the library (laughs) (laughs) yeah he feels really bad about stealing it yeah he's like if i can return it i'm going to so uh, you know (laughs) just goes to show that father callahan's got a good heart i bet stephen king has a little bit of that librarian guilt too i mean he wrote a whole short story about the library policeman that's true yes i I bet he lives in the state of fear of unreturned library books so uh something very trivial that stood out to me was taco chip who says taco chip i know tortilla chip and nacho chip but i don't i don't think until i read this line in the book had i encountered taco chip have you no i don't think so Maybe it's a regional thing, like steamed hams. (laughs) It's more of a dairy main type of thing to say taco chip. Uh, Another thing that I really liked was that um, Roland was reflecting on the number of people who would be standing and fighting. And he said, the fighters would be seven in all. It's a good number, he told himself. A number of power. And I couldn't help but reflect. It's also a magnificent number. <laughs> it is, in fact, a magnificent number. <laughs> and in his author's note, King points out pretty directly, the debt I owe to the American Western and the composition of the Dark Tower novels should be clear without my belaboring the point. And he points out some of the connections and the types of people that he used as sort of source material in creating this. So, mm-hmm. um, Yeah. Yeah, Pretty but, clear. Uh, and, and he states in the beginning of the book, too, look for hints of the Magnificent Seven yeah. in this story. There it's, it is. Uh, it's there all it over is. the page. And uh, one last thing that I really liked was the expression of nothing but guts, your boy, side to side and all the way through the middle. I just like that. It's like, it's got, he's, he is nothing but guts. Yep. Side to side and all the way through the middle. Is it Jake that says that? Um, I think it's said about Jake. Yeah. Jake uh, also takes up smoking here. Like he's totally gone over to the dark side. You can just sort of see him laning up after the gunfight and give me one of those, Roland. It's like, all right. Isn't that when they notice that Susanna's gone? Yeah. Because oh. like Roland, Roland looks up like, oh, is the, the, uh, the mom figure in, in the, <laughs> this scene going to disapprove? Wait a second. Where is she? Yeah. If I ever go back and try to get a PhD in English, my, dissertation is going to be on why why aren't you writing more about Susanna the missed (laughs) opportunities with Susanna I would happily read that dissertation so on a not quite as fun stuff at the very end in his author's afterward King does state as you mentioned earlier Jay that he's written all three of these last books sort of all in one sitting that this book's done and published and the other two are done they're just going through their final edits Um, but he also talks about how Frank Muller was the narrator of all the Dark Tower books up to this one, and then he had had a accident and he was unable to do it. It's sort of a sad story, um, and he addresses it's it. It's a very and, sad story. Yeah, it's a very yeah, it's not sort of it's a very sad story. Um, and he set up a foundation, and you can read the Wikipedia article. I know that there's a lot of folks who listen to our podcast who are also audiobook listeners. I know you're a big audiobook listener. I am, yeah. uh, Jay, and um, 
I know how much, at least of the authors that I read, Neil Gaiman and Stephen King, how much audio readers mean to them. Um, and it was nice for King to sort of call this out for those who might not normally get their books that way. But think about your audio narrators. They do add so much to the story when you have an opportunity to get a good one. I know Travis McGee novels are ones that are mentioned often in these Stephen King books. We've mentioned them a couple times, the John D. Mm -hmm. McDonald books. And they were narrated by uh, Darren McGavin. And now whenever I read those books, I hear that voice as that's Travis McGee's voice to me. And so I know that it's mm -hmm. that way for a lot of storytellers. So just a nice call out there. And anytime I get a chance to talk about Garen McGavin, I appreciate it. You might know him best as Kolchak, the Dark Stalker, also the father in the Christmas story. That's right. But again, he'll always be the voice of Travis McGee to me. Very good. Thanks for mentioning that, Sean. Yeah. So that's all for this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came. Thanks, Jay. Thank you. Links to all of our contact information is available in the show notes. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com, and our Twitter handle is at twoguysdarktower. You can also find us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash twoguysdarktower, or join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash twoguysdarktower. If you like the show, please rate us on iTunes. Next episode, join us as we complete our coverage of Book 5 of the Dark Tower, Wolves of the Kala. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McCurr. Thanks for listening. Rollins pants come flying Rolling off. pants are put into action with Rosita. <laughs> There are other worlds in these.